G'day Dons fans and welcome to the round 15 edition of Don the Stat. After a week off football, but not necessarily a week out of the news, we're back to look at how we can take down an up and down Fremantle team in Perth on Saturday night and get our ninth win for season 2023. I'm Jonathan Walsh and to chat through it all, I'm joined by my co-host Ian Hume. Hume, how's things mate? Mate, they say a week's a long time in football. Well, two weeks feels like an eternity. Uh, going to be a good to focus on on-field issues with a fairly winnable road trip on the cards tonight. Um, how about yourself? Yeah, it's actually gone pretty quick for me. I mean, we we kept busy, obviously, uh, with a couple of shows last week, which was good, and uh, and work's been pretty chaotic. So, uh, so yeah, ha- had lots going on, but definitely looking forward to having Essendon back and, and on our TV screens on Saturday night. Absolutely. And as you said, it's been a big bye week for us. Firstly, we had... Robert Shaw joined us again for the for the second time this season. And again, the listeners responded so positively to it. So thanks again to Shory for joining us and for everyone who's commented on that. Um, we'd also like to thank everyone who's participated in our Patreon Q&A that we recorded and released earlier this week. It was a lot of fun. We both really enjoyed it and are looking forward to doing more. Um, so special shout out to uh, Rick Edwards who joined us for the evening, as well as to Jamie, James, Matt, Toby, Vince, Chris, and Patrick for their questions. Yeah, it was lots of fun, mate. I, I've been fortunate to to do lots of really good things in, in football, um, both as a fan and as an employee, and, and that was right up there. I, I really enjoyed it, and, and particularly connecting with uh, with Essendon fans that are, you know, in, in other time zones and, and other plant parts of the globe and, and all having really interesting stories to share. So, uh, yeah, thanks, everyone, for being part of that. It was heaps of fun and look forward to meeting some new faces at the next one. Yeah. Uh, and finally, before we get started, just a shout out to our new patrons that have joined over the past couple of weeks. Rosh Perry's, Stuart Ma, Zach, Mitchell Coles, JW and Julian Cole. Uh, thanks again for your support of the show. Um, and if you're interested, you can find the link to our Patreon in the show notes. Well, let's get into the episode and we'll start with the news because obviously we covered the Carlson game in our episode with Shory. Uh, look, you would have thought that perhaps in bye week it might have been quiet on the news front from an Essendon perspective, uh, but that reckoned without considering the media, who seemingly are only surviving off the clicks of Essendon fans. It started on Tuesday with the news report in the Herald Sun suggesting that Essendon was planning on ditching the Bombers nickname. It quickly spread like wildfire on social media, and before long we had past players and even the Premier of Victoria making comment on the proposal. Uh, we did have the club president come out with a statement indicating that the suggestion was part of a broader investigation into change the logo, but that hasn't stopped the stories from continuing. Uh, we were debating whether it was worth covering this tonight because um, it's just been such a massive media beat up, but you have some thoughts you want to share, Jono. Yeah, not so much about the bomber itself, and I don't want to misconstrue this as anything other than a view, you know, a personal view from someone who has a real deep respect, you know, for the history of the club. So, um, so yeah, please, please don't be mistaken in me thinking I'm I'm pro getting rid of uh, the bomber as as a nickname or a feature of our logo and branding, but. I think something that's been a little bit lost in all of this is the new administration did make a commitment in October last year to reinstate member forums and focus groups to to make sure that they were in touch with how our members and fans and other stakeholders, including current and past players, felt about you know the direction of the club and and the various facets and how they identify with the club. And uh, you know that was something that that I think we all felt was was missing i mean a lot of stories heard of past players not feeling like they were part of the club anymore was was pretty dire and, and a really sad situation to be in and and as members and fans i think we've all felt disconnected over the last little while um or, or at least not as connected as we would have liked to have been so i think uh, you know bringing that back and, and living up to that commitment and, and that promise is something that we should actually be pleased about and and i know the instinct reply for most people to that will be well I wasn't asked I wasn't part of it and I think the reality is that that having you know one-on-one sessions with 80,000 members just isn't practical and um, uh, you know as long as those focus groups canvas a wide demographic then and you know I think we have every reason to be confident that they have then I think you know our, our club for the the first time in a long time will start to feel closer to or, or be closer to how the fans really feel about it and and, and that's important so I, I think it's yeah let's not lose sight of that and then you know you touched on it mate that the second part of this is let's just be better than overreacting I think to these big media stories you know our, our love and our passion for our football club is what makes Essendon great and um 
uh, you know, it, it got us through, it got the club through, you know, times like the saga and, and other things where, uh, you know, other situations where a, a lot of other clubs probably would have hit rock bottom and, and fallen through. But, um, but it, I think it also makes us a sucker for, for these types of stories that are, uh, you know, are, are overplayed and, and beaten up and, um, and yeah, well, inaccurate, I guess. So I think there was no need for the reaction. You know, Zach Merritt, uh, as a current player and obviously captain, he he spoke about how he was one of the people involved in in this research. Rowan Connolly is obviously another one in the media who's who's got a voice, but also a fan and a member. Um, he was part of it, and both of them confirmed that there was no conversation or, or no discussion around the bomber or, or getting rid of it. So I think we can put that to bed. I hope we can put that to bed and and just get on. But. That aside, mate, just just my two cents, and uh, as a little bit of a history buff, particularly when it's related to our footy club, the club was, as most people know, we we had our 150th anniversary last year. We were founded in 1872 and played our first game in 1873. So, you know, our club and its history predates all but two of the clubs in the English Premier League, which are Crystal Palace and Nottingham Forest, and and even in Crystal Palace's case, that's. Um, a little bit of a dubious one because they sort of folded for 15 years in the late 19th century and then and then reformed. So, you know, given that, uh, you know, modern Australia and Australian rules football is a relatively new um, sport to for our club to be around for as long as some of, you know, the, the old, or older than, than most of the English Premier League clubs says a lot about how far back our history goes. We didn't adopt the Bombers nickname until 1940, though. Obviously, you know, when, when we were first founded, planes didn't even exist. So it was a little bit hard to um, to preempt that one. So, you know, we were around for nearly 70 years before we became the Bombers. And it was only in 1976 when the Bomber found its way onto our official club logo for the first time. And that was a logo that was, you know, we, we didn't have full control over. The, the VFL released, you know, or designed those logos on behalf of all clubs. So, it was really only our current logo, which we've had since 1997, that our club actually designed and had, you know, full control over, independent of that, you know, famous shield template that that people of the 70s and 80s will will remember um, that that the VFL established. So, uh, yeah, we've we've really only ever had one crack at designing a logo for ourselves, and and the bomber is an important part of our identity, but so is. The sash, the, the red sash has been there for almost the entirety of our history. It goes back to 1877. Um, and, it, and if people aren't familiar with it, we we put that on our jumpers because back then every team used to wear the same. So you talk about jumper clashes now. Well, it was a, a fair bit more difficult back in, uh, back in the late uh, 1870s. And, and that led to us putting the sash there. So I think if we do change and and, and again, that change doesn't mean getting rid of the bomber. It just means changing our logo. I think, it, and at some point, we undoubtedly will. I think it's naive to think we'll have our current logo forever. I do hope that it incorporates our entire, the entirety of our history. And, and for the, for me, that includes the bombers, the sash, and, and 1872 is the year we were established. And, and our current logo, I don't think fully grasps that. It also doesn't say that we're a football club, which, you know, to some people's neither here nor there. But, um, but yeah, that might be nice to be added at some point as well. Yeah, look, great perspective there, mate. And as a history buff myself, I loved uh, hearing what you had to say there and just allowing all of us to reflect back on, you know, how far back the club goes. And as you say, you know, it's only roughly been around half the lifetime of the club that it's been connected to the Bombers, whereas it it goes back even further than that. Um, And so I tend to agree with with what you said there. Um, And as you said, look, I'll say to all Essendon fans that the more we engage with these sort of stories that, that come out that are, undoubtedly beat ups the more the media organizations are going to write them so let's all be better than that and you know if we don't interact with those but we do interact with the stories that you know delve into you know stats or how the game is played they're going to be encouraged to write more of those um so let's try and get them to actually focus on what's happening on the field well look as we've been doing for the past couple of weeks we have been addressing listener questions that we received on twitter and we're going to answer a couple more today you're going to address this one that was sent to us by rich batch um he's asked what uh some of the common stats actually mean so for example when is a kick effective versus ineffective um is meters gained purely based on the distance towards goal uh how does a switch kick work um what possession counts as a clearance does a hit out to space count and what about repeat stoppages so a few terms there that he was a bit confused about, and I'm sure a lot of listeners, you know, hear us refer to it or hear them on the coverage 
of games and are not quite sure what exactly they mean. So um, give us a bit of an explainer on some of those. Yeah, it was a good question. Uh, for anyone that does want to get the full gamut of of definitions as they are to champion data, and and a lot of these definitions, I should say, were were written quite a long time ago. I think modern football's transcended quite a lot of them. But uh, yeah, if you just jump on Google and type in champion data definitions or champion data glossary, you'll find a, a page that's got all of them. You know, there's still lots of vernacular to work through. And if you're not, still not sure what some of them mean, feel free to to uh, slide into my DMs. But um, but to answer the, the ones that were brought up specifically, Kicks are broken up first into long kicks and short kicks. And and a long kick is a kick of 40 metres or more. And a short kick is obviously anything that's less than 40 metres. And then there's a, a a different definition for what makes an effective long kick versus an effective short kick. But effective kicks are the total of your effective long kicks plus your effective short kicks. So for a short kick to be effective, your intended target must retain possession. So if you kick the ball less than 40 metres, so if it's an innocent player kicking it, for it to be an effective kick, we must maintain possession through, you know, a, a mark or a, or a ball get. For a long kick to be effective, and this is where the definition isn't great, it just has to go to a, a be over 40 metres and go to a 50-50 contest or better. So, uh, if, you know, if the ball is spooled away or, or it goes out of bounds, um, you know, after being knocked on or punched by an opponent, uh, then that kick is still effective. And then an ineffective kick are, are the opposite. And then the other um, one that's sort of hidden in, in ineffective kicks are behinds, all behinds. Yeah. Are- yeah, so just just quickly on that, you said if it goes to a 50-50 contest or better. So if it goes to a 50-50 contest, but the opposition takes, uh, say, a contested mark, is that still classed as an effective kick? Yeah, so if... Um, Andrew McGrath kicked the ball out of our back fifty to the to the wing, and it was Durham and Peter Wright on um, you know Alex Pierce on Saturday night, and and Pierce out muscles Peter Wright and and Durham and takes the mark. Then that's still classified as a effective kick because it's gone to a contest that's better than fifty fifty. But if it it was a short kick in the same situation, it would be classed as ineffective. So it's um, yeah it. There's some real grey areas in how it's calculated, and and it doesn't always tell the full story. So um, it, it can be a little bit hard to to match those things up. But yeah, and then um, obviously behinds are by default all ineffective kicks as well. Um, the other one that that he asked was um, meters gained and and what that means, and and it is the net distance between where the player starts with the ball and where the ball ends up after they've disposed of it. So you can have negative metres gained if you kick the ball backwards or you run backwards. Um, uh, so, yeah, if you run in a straight line for 15 metres and then kick it 30 metres, you know, from, yeah, let's just say from one goal square towards the other one, then that's a, a net of 45 metres gained. But if you kick the ball 15 metres sideways, then it's zero metres gained. It, it, it's calculated based on on movement towards goal. Uh, if you ran forward 10 metres and then stopped and then handballed backwards five metres, then that would be five metres um, you know, net gain. So you've gone forward 10 and back five. So, uh, so yeah, so that's how that one works. And then a clearance is awarded to the player that has the first effective disposal in a chain that clears the stoppage. So again, this one can, can be a little bit difficult. I think they've overcomplicated it from what it was um, a number of years ago, but Again, using as an example, if, if Draper, and obviously that won't be this week, but we'll touch on that a little bit later. Um, if he grabbed the ball from the ruck and handballs straight to Merritt and Merritt kicks the ball inside 50, then Draper is the one that's awarded with the clearance. However, if Merritt is tackled and the ball doesn't clear the area, then no clearance is awarded. So, um, and I think the other question is what happens if it's a clearing hit out? And, and that one I'm actually not sure on. I don't think it counts as a clearance, but someone might um, know a little bit better on that one than me and, and be able to pick us up. So, again, yeah, you can have um, a player get the first possession and depending on what happens after that, determining whether or not that becomes a clearance or not, it's um, it, again, it's, it's a little bit over convoluted. Yeah, as you say, it is a bit confusing and I guess, you know, it's not really well explained, you know, any, anywhere. As, as you say, you can Google it and, and read it, but there's not necessarily an explainer. So if there's an enterprising individual out there that would like to put together some sort of video explainer for each of each of the stats, 
um, with with vision, that probably would be useful. So that's pr- probably an area that if anyone's listening and wants to do that, um, we'd appreciate that as much as anyone. Uh, the other question we're going to address tonight is from Lama Bin Wild, um, and he's asked about who is playing for their career for the remainder of the season. So I've taken this question, and I think it's basically asking what sort of list changes are we looking at making uh, over this season? And given you have to make three list changes at the very least, I think it's an interesting ponder this year because I, other, unlike previous years, I don't think there's a lot of obvious players that you would say should be coming off the list. It's, it's actually pretty tight in terms of who you're going to have to move around. Um, I've done this on the assumption that Parrish and Redmond will stay. Um, if they decide to leave, then that would probably change the equation about who who departed and, and who stayed. Uh, the other players out of contract this year, uh, Brian, Heppel, Jones, Lord, Anthony McDonald, Tip and Woody, Phillips, Snelling, and Brandon Zerk Thatcher from the main list, whilst Baldwin, D'Ambrosio, Menzi, McBride, Montgomery, and Mankara and Voss are all out of contract rookies. So starting with the main list players, uh, for me, Brian Jones and BCT are the ones you are probably keenest to sign. Uh, of those, Brian has the most currency if you wanted to trade him, and he may want to leave as well for more opportunity. Um, at this stage, I would be keeping him unless a good offer came around where even if he, you would encourage him to leave to try and get a player in. If he wants to leave, you know, there's not much we can do at the moment to prevent him from doing that. Um, so if a good uh, draft pick offer came around or you were getting a player that you thought filled a, a more urgent hole than a Ruckman, um, then I would look at doing that trade. But otherwise I would be keeping him. Um, at this stage of the season, it, it's probably up to Heppel, whether he gets a contract or not, he's, he's playing well enough and has the experience that the list lacks that you, you really want to keep him around if he's ready to go. Um, it's really just up to whether he feels his body is right for another season. Another one in a similar boat is Phillips. Uh, every every list needs an experienced backup ruckman. Um, if Phillips is happy to play on, are you really going to go out and be able to find someone who's going to play that role and, and do a better job, you know, the, the 30% uh, ruck time and, you know, potentially get subbed off every game or doesn't play every game. Um, I'm doubtful that there's another player out there. You just sort of be um, a bit of a uh, cultural reference right now, but you just be shifting deck chairs on the Titanic um, by doing that. Um, so for me, in this case, it's it's better the devil you know with Phillips. Um, AMT is an interesting one, but as it's been said elsewhere, and I think you've said that, I doubt they've convinced him to come back for one year only. Um, so I expect him to get another year as, as long as game, he feels he's up to it. So that really leaves Snelling and Lord as the two on the main list that I think are in the most danger. Uh, you know, Lord doesn't seem to improve much in his time at the club. And that that's pretty harsh for a quite a young player to come in, but that's the nature of the industry, unfortunately. Um, while Snelling is competing with a lot of younger players with more upside, we, we have gone heavy on the small forward, you know, uh, high half forward, uh, players in, in the depth of the list and finding out about them. So he might be in a bit of trouble there. Uh, the one other change I would look at is potentially paying out Stewart of his last year of his contract, much as we did with Devin Smith last year. Um, but again, that will depend on how he's able to come back in the latter part of the year. Yeah, I think there's still a lot to play out. Mate, that You touched on it, the AFL rules dictate that you have to make three senior list changes or, or have three picks in the draft, but you can include promoted rookies in that. So we would have the flexibility to say, to list someone like James Stewart, uh, who's unlikely to play much footy this year and then pick him up as a rookie. If, if we didn't want to just pay him out like we did for, uh, for Devin Smith and then promote someone like Menzi to the senior list. And that counts as one of your three, um, you know, draft selections or, or changes to your senior list. So, yeah, it, it kind of feels like this is the most even that our list has been in a long time. I think we've still got lots and lots of question marks about about players, but um, in terms of you know ones that that look easily identifiable to say, or oh, they're probably not part of our immediate future, I, I think is a little bit more harder. But you just briefly touched on rookies. What's the status of those? Yeah, so again, of, of the rookies that I mentioned at the start, uh, Baldwin, Menzi, D'Ambrosio, and Mankara are all key signings for me. Uh, Baldwin will have to be moved to the main list. He's had three years on the rookie list. That's the maximum you can do. Um, so the way the list the list system works, you have to have between 36 to 38 main list players, and then you conversely can have uh, four to six rookie list cadet players. And so we could simply move 
because we're at the lower end of the main list size, we could simply move Baldwin to the main list and have one less player on the rookie list. And that would still maintain the the ratios that we need to have. So that's a pretty easy move there. Obviously there's other things to play out. Um, of those other players, um, Menzi is basically a, a best 22 player at this stage. So you would keep him. D'Ambrosio is sort of on the cusp and there has been whispers that other clubs are into him. Uh, so, but again, I think there's a lot of upside there. We would be quite keen to keep him. And then Mankara is obviously a long-term project and it seems like he's he's coming on okay and yeah, give him more time, obviously. Uh, McBride got an extension. Uh, cap, some rookies got uh, an extended year due to COVID. Um, but unfortunately, I think he's on the way out. It's his fourth year and he hasn't come close to making the main side. So I think he'll be moved on. Um, that leaves Montgomery and Voss as potential outs. Um, for me, we don't have a lot of players who play that medium style defender role. Um, so I think Montgomery will get another year. Um, Voss is an interesting one. He, he does seem to have stagnated after a strong start to the year. And if they feel like they've got some better options coming through, or as you say, they're prepared to move Stewart onto the rookie list to try and free up a main list spot, he might unfortunately get cut. And as you sort of pointed out previously in conversations with me, you think that uh, AFL lists are too small. And I tend to agree with that. And players like him and, and potentially a Lord as well, aren't getting enough of a time on a list to, to have an impact. But again, look, a lot's going to play out. A lot will depend on any trade targets we're seeking to get as to who gets cut and, and who managed to keep their spot. Um, and look, if we continue with our good form, our draft hand is probably not going to be a strong one either, meaning you're not needing to create spaces to bring in a, a large amount of players through the draft. So obviously a lot to play out, but that's just my my starting thoughts there. Uh, if you ha- had to put a gun to my head and make me pick three players to drop off the list this year, I'd be, I'd be going Lord, Snelling and Stewart. But uh, again, lots to play out there. Yeah, there is. And you touched on it right at the very start, mate. You've made an assumption about uh, Parrish and Redmond and, and they're the, the primary domino pieces in all of this, aren't they? What they do or don't do is is going to ultimately dictate the rest of our list management st- strategy going into next season. Yeah. Well, look, let's turn our attention to our opponents this week in Fremantle. So the Dockers were one of the biggest improvers of 2022. They won 15 games and, and finished the regular season in fifth spot. They then won their elimination final against the Bulldogs before losing in the semifinals to Collingwood. So they were highly tipped as a top four chance going into 2023, and that really hasn't panned out so far. They're currently sitting 14th with six wins, seven losses, and a percentage of 94. So they they really started off poorly. They lost to St Kilda and then North Melbourne. And since then, they've been a real Jekyll and Hyde side. They've defeated teams like Geelong and, and Melbourne, some really good wins, particularly that Melbourne game at the MCG was obviously their best win of the season. Um, but they've also lost to teams such as Richmond and the Giants, which they would have expected to win. Um, and we'll, we'll touch on their match against the Giants, which was last weekend uh, coming up. Um, and their record at home this year is a concern. They've only won half their games at, at Optus Stadium this year. And when you're a team that travels every other week, you really want to be banking your home games uh, so that you can really push for those those higher echelons of the ladder. Um in terms of their hallmark from last year, it was really their contested work. It was, and one of the biggest dropaways this year has been their clearance numbers. So last year they were third overall for overall clearance differential if you combine center clearance and stoppage clearance with plus 2.9 a game. But this year they're 13th with minus 0.7. So really matches where their ladder position is last year and this year in terms of their clearance numbers. And another area that's really dropped off is their contested possession differential. They had a positive differential last year of 0.8, but this year they're down at 17th with minus 7.2 and only the Eagles are worse in contested possession. So they've really struggled in that contested area. And I think it's the key for us going into this week. And because there's been such a fluctuation in their overall results, uh, it's really interesting to focus on what changes between their wins and losses this year. Um, one thing that really stood out to me was their inside 50 efficiency in losses. It's only at 41.94. And in, for all teams in, in their losses, that's the, the second lowest of any side other than the, the Lions who, who had a worse record for inside 50 efficiency in losses. Uh, if you take out the, the top two sides have only had a couple of losses this year, um, the Fremantle's difference in stoppage clearance numbers between win and losses is only better than Geelong. So, um, and then in terms of contested ball, they're, they're plus two in wins and, and minus 14 in losses. So it really feels like getting Fremantle the contest is the way to win. And, you know, that's not rocket science against most teams, but it really seems 
to be the clear way to defeat Fremantle. Yeah, it does, and, and we'll touch on that a little bit further uh, in a sec. But Optus Stadium is also an interesting one, mate. Last season was a little bit the same. Four of their six home and away losses last season were at Optus Stadium, which is you know almost unheard of, particularly for a WA team when they're where they, when they're up and about as Frio were last year, and and yeah, lost two of their last four games there overall. So, despite you know winning an elimination final and, and pushing Collingwood. In that semi-final last year, they um, uh, their home record wasn't you know a, as rock solid as it as it tends to be, and uh, and they, their list went through quite an overall overhaul. Sorry, I should say as well. Do you want to touch on that a little bit? Yeah, so you know, it really stood out to me, and uh, it, again, look at that. Uh, thanks to Ricky Mangitis with his data that he posted at the start of the year. That really is what made me take notice of this. They, They've had probably the highest turnover in terms of players who who played bulk games in 2022 that aren't on the list in 2023. So when you look at the minutes played by all their players in 2022, no side has lost more than Frio did coming into this year. And I think that disruption goes part of the way to explaining their inconsistent results so far in, in 2023. You, you rely a lot on cohesion to to really push your side up the ladder to you know know how your teammates are going to react in certain situations and how they're going to play. Um, that really helps teams, you know, get that extra two or three percent that that makes them successful. And when you have as many list changes as Frio did, that can cause issues. So, in terms of their outs, uh, David Mundy retired after playing twenty-two games last year. Uh, Blake Akers was traded to Carlton, where and he played twenty games in twenty twenty-two. Uh, Rory Lobb was traded to the Bulldogs, and he played twenty-one games. Uh, Griffin Logue and Darcy Tucker went to North Melbourne and, and they played 20 and 14 games respectively. Uh, Lloyd Meek was traded to Hawthorne and he, he only played six games, but again, you know, significant numbers of players. And, and then uh, Connor Blakely was also delisted. Now, he didn't play any games in 2022, but prior to that year, he was also a key part of their side. Um, he ended up being picked up by Gold Coast in the rookie draft. So, They've lost a lot of games from last year and, you know, they really haven't picked up a whole lot to replace it. Obviously, the, the big name there is is Luke Jackson from Melbourne and, and they also picked up Jaeger Amira from Hawthorne and they are playing key roles in the side. So, Jackson's played every game so far and Amira all but one. Uh, other than that, they also brought in eight other players, mostly through the draft. But other than Josh Corbett from Gold Coast with one game and draftee Corey Wagner with two, None of those other players have been cited yet. So they've really been relying on their previous list depth to get them through. And I think that's why they're being found out currently. So that maybe through no fault of their own, these players wanted to to get out of Freo, but they've cut a lot of their, you know, mid, mid-tier experience. And obviously a player of the quality of Monday going out also hurts them as well. Um, that said, the more they play together, the more the cohesion is going to build. So they might be a side that as that cohesion and their understanding of each other builds, they might be a big improver in the second half of the year. Yeah, Will Brody's an interesting one too, mate. They recruited him from the Gold Coast and, and you know, our, our fans were probably, and at the time, deservedly so, all, all of this is easy in hindsight. We're, we're a bit critical, you know, we, we've been shouting out or, or a lot of people have been shouting out for a, a big tall big body midfielder for quite some time and, and he was available um in trade week at the, at the end of 2021 and 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 we didn't go there. Uh he had a really strong year in 2022 sort of coming off the bench and being that you know fifth midfielder in the rotation you know him and David Mundy were really powerful duo but he's been dropped a couple of times now this year and and is still out of their side. So in terms of what we face this week compared to what we we faced last year he he's another big out for them as well um uh, luke jackson i, I think's cops some unfair criticism at times I, I think we're just seeing how difficult it is for a young key you know key position slash ruckman to go into a team that's not performing at their best compared to to you know having it a little bit easier that uh, at melbourne in a team that was you know, confident and, and full of experience around him. He's still playing some really good footy and, and that coincides with when Frio have played their best footy. When he's up and about, they tend to be or, or vice versa. Every time he's kicked multiple goals this year, Fremantle are one and, and they're one and five when he's gone goalless. So, yeah, he, he's still playing good footy and, and contributing. Um, and, and when he does, Fremantle generally play well. And then Omir is just not the player he was, was he? I think he's been serviceable this year without dominating games. And if he was there 
fifth or sixth midfielder and and you know guys like Brody were still able to have a, an impact and he was down in the in the pecking order it might be a little bit different but he's basically their third midfielder at the moment and he's probably not at that that quality at the moment um but you know he's still someone who's who's capable of of being really damaging but he he has you know and maybe this is because he hasn't quite learned to to play with his new teammates yet but he is handballing a lot and, and a lot more than he kicks which generally hasn't been his game so um yeah it's it's been an interesting list um change process for them you know coming off a season where they made a semi final yeah well, look, one of the reasons why they made the semi-final last year was like wins like they had against Essendon in round six at Marvel uh, last year. So that game, Essendon 8-11-59, lost to Fremantle 16-11-107. And it's a game we've, we've constantly referred back to. We're still doing it uh, a couple of weeks ago even. Um, you know, it, it really epitomised a lot of our key issues from season 2022. Um, and the big area there was the reliance on on too few in the middle. Um, look, Essendon were only three points down at, at half time, but a, a six goal to nothing third quarter led the way for that comprehensive 48 point victory for the Dockers. And, you know, we pointed out at the time that Essendon for most of that game only rotated three key midfielders through in, in Paris Shield and McGrath Merritt was out that game whilst Fremantle had a lot more rotations, you know, and, by the time halftime ended, they had a lot more fresh legs and they contributed to a five to one center clearance win in that third quarter. And that's where most of the dominance in the rest of the game came from. Yeah, that's right. We don't want to harp on it too much. We lost by, you know, eight goals or whatever it was, but, um, uh, you know, five of those came in like a 15 minute hot patch in that third quarter where their midfield just took over and, and ran riots. So I think we're, our midfield has has evolved and, and improved a lot. You know, um, it, we've got merit back from from that team last year, and, and McGrath's obviously moved into the back line, and then the likes of Shield and uh, sorry, um, the likes of Hobbs and Caldwell and and whatnot have have come in and, and started playing big midfield minutes. So um, yeah, I think we're we're much better placed to for that midfield battle than we were last year. Uh, but speaking of this week, mate, let's um, let's have a look at selection and, and talk through what's happened there. Yeah, well, look, we'll start with Fremantle and they've got some big ins. So, uh, Michael Frederick and, and Sean Darcy come in. Uh, out goes Bailey Banfield, Nathan O'Driscoll and Sam Sturt. Um, and the first thought for me mainly is that Fremantle's side has improved. And one of the problems I've had in the past couple, couple of weeks and, you know, has been a lack of size down forward that they're Tall forwards at the moment are, you know, young and and a bit thin. Um, so with Darcy back, that means Jackson can spend more time in the forward line, where it could be a bit of a challenge for Essendon's defenders. We don't really have anyone of his size, um, so it's going to be a bit of a team effort to try and uh, contain him. I would also like to acknowledge the absence of Matthew Tavener. Um, across his career, he's kicked eight bags of four or more, um, and half of those bags have come against Essendon, including seven in that game last year. So the fact that he's not playing is a bit of a win for us. Yeah, he's been a real bogey player for for us, hasn't he? And um yeah, you know, again, you know, Mundy and um and Brody had big um games against us last year. They're not there for for two different reasons and and Ace still isn't back either. So, you know, they uh, whilst they they're gaining in terms of their ruck and and forward profile with Darcy being, you know, one of the genuine better ruckmen in the competition and, and Frederick helping their forward line and, and Jackson by virtue of Darcy being back. I think their their midfield's probably still not at at where they would like it to be. And and that's where, you know, we'll we'll get some ascendancy. But um over to us, mate, what have we done at the selection table? Yeah, so you speak about that that midfield and, you know, the first name here, Darcy Parrish, is gonna really contribute to giving Essendon a chance at, at getting an advantage in that midfield and and getting on top in the game. And, and he's joined in the team by Jake Kelly, who, who's back after um, about five weeks out, I think, since the Port Adelaide game. I think maybe even six weeks if you count the bye. So quite a long time for him to re- return there from his uh, concussion. Um, good to see him back. He's obviously had a really big impact at the start of the season. Uh, out goes Massimo D'Ambrosio, uh, Nick Hind, and Sam Draper, who it was highlighted pretty early that, that he might not play this week. Um, our emergency, so you expect the sub to be picked from this list, is Nick Cox, uh, first-time name for the season, so really encouraging signs there. Um, Hind, Brian, and Ambrosio. And it's probably the right move to give Sam Draper an extended rest. He's been looking quite run down, and, and from all accounts, he hasn't been able to train. So um, I do suspect that Brad Scott's pulling his favourite trick of, of bringing the second Ruckman in as a late change. 
although there are suggestions of, of rain around which might prevent that. Um, look, if that was to go ahead as we expect it will, who would you be moving to the sub bench? Yeah, two schools of thought on this one, mate. One thing that, and I know we brought Brian in for one game over in Perth um, against West Coast and then left him out. But generally when he when Brad Scott has brought young players in, it's been to give them an extended run. So if there's a, a view that um, that Draper might only miss the week, they, they may be tempted just to, to go with the one Ruckman for the week and use... Um, and you know now that Peter writes back, use either him or Wiedemann as that second ruck. So so that could be um, something that they're thinking. But let's assume that we do pull the the um, the late change trick with Brian coming in. I think the the obvious ones to me would be either Guelphie or Snelling. Um, they've both been sub at, at various times this year, and and um, you know can play. A variety of roles. Snelling's helped out in and around the midfield and on the wing a little bit, but with Parrish back, we probably don't need that as much um, in in the twenty two and and um, and obviously Guelphie's you know had a, an impact forward, but can also play a little bit of wing and half back at a pinch, so it does allow him to to be an impact player as sub as well. So uh, one of those two would be would be my guess, mate, or, or what I'd do if it was me. Well, look, Brad Scott's already fulfilled one of your dreams by playing Nick Martin in the centre square. Maybe he'll fulfill another one of yours by having Nick Cox as a second ruck. Um, but we'll see how that plays out. Yeah, well, I mean, he has been he hasn't been playing ruck in the VFL, but he's played in the midfield the the last two weeks, hasn't he? So, or the last two games. Um, obviously, the VFL had a bye last week too. So, uh, I wouldn't expect he'd come into the AFL team to to play as a midfielder, but uh, yeah, he they might see him as an as an option to come in and play. A, a variety of roles, um, but I, I suspect they're probably going to want to see a bit more of a body of work and they've named him as a, an emergency just to let him know that he's he's close and, and on the right track. But um, I think it, he's probably got a little bit more to prove. Yeah. And just, again, to touch back on Parrish, it, it, it's great to have him back. And with with him being out as well as players like Sheil and Setterfield, we've, we've learned a lot more about, you know, your Caldwells and your Hobbs and your Perkins and even your Nick Martins running through those midfield rotations. So to have him back now, we were not going to be so reliant on him to dominate clearances as we once did. Um, we can we can manage him a lot better and, you know, maybe even say 60% time on ground, but really high impact time on ground from, from Darcy. And it also might take some pressure off Stringer um, so he can be closer to goals as well and, and be dangerous there as well. So it gives us more options just to play around with. So more options is, is generally always better. So we'll see how that plays out. Let's take a quick look at how Fremantle went in their last game. And uh, the Giants 16-10-106 defeated Fremantle 5-6-36. It was the biggest loss that Fremantle have suffered under Justin Longmuir's tenure. tenure. Um, it was a goalless first quarter for them, and then it was eight goals to two in the second half, which led to that 70-point loss. Um, it's one of those games where even though Fremantle was down 46 overall possessions and, and 24 in contest possessions, they were still out-tackled by the Giants, 63 to 50. So you don't like seeing that. When you see that from sides, you know, it, it does suggest a bit of lack of effort there. They were also thrashed 16 to 6 in centre clearances, although they did match the Giants at stoppage. Um, and their defence considered 21 marks inside 50, and, and that's the highest total for the Giants uh, this year and the most conceded by Freo. So it was a pretty uh, abject performance by the Dockers last week, and you would imagine that, you know, it'd be very unlikely that you would see them to put in the same level of effort coming into this week, especially playing at home. Yeah, I mean, whilst they've been up and down this year, it's the first time where they've been like, just really non-competitive in a game and um you know the giants have been up and down themselves and and are capable of putting in really big performances but i think you know that uh, and they were really really good the giants but it it was a lot more about just the lack of of effort from from Fremantle and and really sort of surprising to see so hopefully uh you know there's a little bit more of the same of that this week but but i expect they're going to put up a much bigger account of themselves yeah. Well, look, let's dig into what the Dons need to do to win this game. What challenges do you think Fremantle are going to pose for us with, with their style of game? Yeah, they're a really interesting matchup for us because they're a team who are playing a style of football that I don't think naturally lends itself to taking our game away from us. And and in that, I actually mean that they sort of play a similar style of football to we do. They're just not quite as direct with the football um, and uh, you know, I think it just gives us an opportunity to do what we've been already doing and, and do it better than our opponent. 
you've touched on some of the their key stats, but they rank tenth for center clearances. We we rank fifth, although they rank seventh for differential, whereas we rank ninth. So you know they're a little bit better than us there, but they're they're scoring just the eight point two points a game from center clearance and, and we're conceding eight ourselves, uh, but scoring 14.7. So you'd think the center clearance gives us a, a real opportunity to to get some ascendancy there. And, and again, that's part of the game that we do well and, and they're not doing it all that well themselves. They rank 13th in the AFL for stoppage clearance deferential. We rank 10th. Um, they're outscoring us from stoppages a little bit, though, 26.7 points a game to our 18.5 points a game. So uh, there's a watch in that space. We, we need to be better at stoppage than we typically are. They're 17th for contested possession differentials, so second last in the league, and 13th for efficiency inside their own 450, and 13th for conceding uh, once, you know, teams go in their own, it, it go into their defensive 50. So, you know, they're, they're not a high midfield team. They don't put a lot of pressure in through the middle of the ground. Um, and, and um, yeah, and, and they're not typically that efficient when they go inside 50 or, or that good at stopping opposition teams once they do get in there. So I think that gives us some opportunities as well. They're, they're, they're not a high inside 50 team and, and we've obviously been conceding a lot of inside 50. So they would have to really change up how they play to, to kind of counter the way that we've gone about it. And, given the loss that they had in their previous game, that's, you know, they, they've got a lot to address in, in one week and, and that might be something that's really difficult for them to achieve. They are still a team though, that has some real individual talent. Sean Darcy's ranked third in the AFL for score launches. He's equal with Sam Draper, who won't be there. Caleb Sarong ranked sixth for stoppage clearances and, and Brendan Cox and Alex Pierce are both ranked inside the top 20 for intercept possession. So, uh, you know, I think, They've got some players that we're going to have to keep an eye on. But, yeah, I think there's a real template to beating Fremantle, mate. Um, you, you touched on some of the differences between their wins and losses. They're, in their wins, they're plus four and a half at stoppages and plus two for contested ball. And in their losses, they're minus six at stoppages and, and almost minus 15 in contested ball. So, you know, that says to me that if we can get that part of the game right, uh, with the benefit of bringing Darcy Parrish back, who's obviously excellent at, at both of those things, then we give ourselves a, a real chance. In our weeks, in our wins, I should say, we're break even at stoppage and plus four for contested ball. In our losses, we're minus 1.6 and then minus 16 for contested ball. So it works the other way for us too. If we're not winning contested ball in particular, then um, then we struggle to get the game on our on our own terms. But you know that said, in in their last two wins, they've scored more from stoppages than turnovers. So, um, yeah, it, it's going to be really important that we're able to win stoppages and 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 or at least break even. Um, and then from our area, we don't rely on it nearly as much as they do. We've been able to win our last four games despite losing contested ball in three of those and, and losing stoppages in two. So, yeah, as I said, a, a break even there, mate, and in both stoppages and contested ball, I think we give ourselves every chance. Um, and then the, the other one is you know we're averaging 103 marks a game which we spoke about last week in the in the mid-season review and and champion data seems to be losing their mind over this because they can't comprehend how a team could possibly win games having that many marks but um you know and that's despite the fact that it's only six more marks a game than Geelong had last year Frio concede 82 marks a game in their wins but that increases to 93 marks a game in their losses and, and GWS took 110 against them last week. So I think that suggests if we can win contested ball and and get territory and then play our, our kick mark possession style game that, that's designed to to increase that territory game, then I think that lends itself very, very well to being uh, to being able to beat um, Fremantle. But um, yeah, despite that, I also think there's some, some big matchups that, you know, that we're going to have to be mindful of, but um, but yeah, I think this is mostly about backing us in, backing in the way that we've been playing. We've seen us press higher up the ground the last two weeks, and I think we we need to continue to do that. And and if we can get get the game going on our own on our own terms, then yeah, we give ourselves every chance. Yeah, and I guess what are some of those matchups? Just quickly. Yeah, well, without Draper, I, I'm assuming that that will make the the late change, and and Brian comes in, and and if he does, we we get an opportunity to see how competitive he can be. But but either either way, we're going to need a lot out of Andrew Phillips. He'll he'll need to be at his best 
you know, he, he's sort of physical and combative best. And, you know, keeping in mind, they've also got Luke Jackson as their second ruckman. So, um, yeah, we, we're going to have to really rely on on Phillips in particular to really bang and crash and, and make sure that their rucks aren't giving um, first use and, and our mids are going to need their present around the contest as well. And then in, in Caleb Sarong and Andrew Brayshaw, they've got two of the better midfielders in the competition. Sarong in particular, uh, you know, he'd have to be in, in all Australian contention and, and in that squad of 40 at the moment. So it's not so much matchup related. I'd, I'd love to see Hobbs back up his performance against Carlton. I, I thought that was the best game he's played. You know, I, I think the challenge is there on him this week to now back that up. I think Stringer's size will be important in and around clearances again, particularly without Draper. That that becomes even more important, as well as Perkins. And yeah, hoping that that we'll continue to see our midfielders rotate through there. Yeah, and and they do seem to be light on for midfield rotations, particularly without. Brody and H. So Sarong attended 87% of center bounces last week. Uh, Brayshaw was next with 74. Then O'Meara 57, uh, Fife at 35, and young Matthew Johnson at 17, um, along with Hayden Young. And, and it, from their name side, it does seem like they are going to be putting a lot more pressure on on Fife to get more involved in the midfield, which he hasn't been doing this year. So it's I think it's a really good opportunity for us to to make the most of our newfound midfielders and and outwork them with numbers and you know out be running on top of the ground at the, end, at the end of the game, whereas they might have overworked their um, their star midfielders because of their light on numbers. Yeah, and, you know, Nat Fife's not the Brownlow medalist, Nat Fife, but he's still Nat Fife, right? Like, he, and he's, he seems to be building into his season. So it's a really good point. You know, we, we do have a big opportunity to out-rotate and out-work their mids through, through weighted numbers, but they also have some real quality in there that we're going to have to be really mindful of. I think the other part of the game that we can get them is, is their back line can be vulnerable in one-on-ones. And I think that's, that's partly down to uh, not a lot of pressure through their midfield that they're not a high tackling team or a high pressure team, but uh, we've been really good for most of the season in separating defenses and creating one-on-one contests, uh, you know, game two now with Peter right back and, and hopefully that forward setup evolves um, and, you know, that cohesion gets a little bit better, but um, Hayden Young across their halfback line as a player, I think we'll need to be mindful of. He'll, he'll probably spend some time in the midfield again, but Frio's halfbacks do like to get their hands on the footy, but they're, they're really prone to that sort of s- slow and sideways movement, which plays into our hands, I think. Um, so guys like Luke Ryan, Brennan Cox, Jordan Clark, Heath Chapman, et cetera, you know, they get plenty of the footy, um, but they do, can, Fremantle do concede 33 points a game from turnovers in in their defensive half. So um, I think there's an opportunity for us to, to really continue with that higher press that we've seen the last two games on the basis that we can get contested ball and territory in the first place. Um, they conceded eight goals from turnovers in their own defensive half last week, which is, uh, you know, that that's that's a, a winning score in, in some games. So uh, a, a big opportunity f- for us there. But Hayden Young is the one that will take risks and get up the ground and influence scoreboard. He, he averages 500 metres a game or metres gained a game, which puts him in the elite category, which, you know, in context of players that play in halfback, that, that's really important. Uh, he's second at Fremantle for for rebound 50s, but also fourth for inside 50s. So he, he really does carry the ball. Um, he leads their defenders for score involvement. So I think like we did with Saad, you know, it's not a direct matchup, but it's just making sure he's someone that we minimise the influence of by by making sure that he really has to earn his possessions and, and disposes of the ball under real pressure. Yeah. Well, look, just sort of projecting forward a little bit further. I know it's dangerous to, to look beyond the next game, but... You know, there's a significant challenge to the next run of games, particularly the next five. And we're obviously in a strong position going to those in terms of where we are on the ladder. But I guess just out of the next five games, how many do you think Essendon need to win in order to play finals? Yeah, one week at a time, right? But um, it's hard not to look ahead, isn't it? Um I think we're at a stage in our development where we can consider ourselves a, a, a genuine chance in all five of them. And that's not to say that we'll we'll go five and nil, but I think you can find reasons that we'll win and and equally lose any or all of them. You know, Fremantle haven't been going very well. I got smashed last week, but the game is over in Perth where, you know, they they're typically better and, and we're not so good. 
Port Adelaide are flying, but the game's at the G and, and you know, they got touched up there early in the year. Um, so, you know, and we've been playing good footy at the MCG this year. So, you know, we'd feel good about that. The Crows have been playing good footy, but haven't really been able to win away from home. Cats at Cadinia Park is a huge challenge, but, you know, they're struggling likely without Dangerfield. And, and as we're recording this, I've seen that... Um, Jeremy Cameron's gone off the ground um, on a stretcher. Hopefully he's he's okay, but who knows? Um, uh, you know he could be missing as well. So you know we'd give ourselves a chance, and and the dogs have been inconsistent, but but generally good at Marvel. So I think if you look at it purely through a finals lens, then I think winning three out of the four against the teams that are around us on the ladder in in Fremantle, Adelaide, Geelong, and the Bulldogs is is really important because they're they're almost you know, eight-point games, aren't they, in, in old-school terms? So I, I think if we were to win three of those um, and and win three out of the five, um, then I think that sets us up in to move into a run of games where, you know, we're playing some teams further down the ladder. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I think if we're looking to do damage in the finals, it it's probably needs to be, you know, three of those four that you mentioned. And I think if we're just looking at making the finals and, you know, have, giving ourselves a chance and it, I think a pass mark is about two um, and then, you know, really push hard in those, those final five games after that. But that's obviously got to play out and, and we'll have to get past Fremantle before we can even really start thinking about the rest of those sides. Well, look, that's going to be the end of us for tonight. Thanks everyone for all the support. Um, if you haven't already hit the subscribe button in your, your pod app of choice, it's actually a big help in getting the podcast up the feeds and and getting it noticed by other people. Um, and I've also confirmed today our next bonus episode guest, which I'm really excited about. Um, so expect to hear that coming out in the next couple of weeks. Uh, any final words from you, Jono? Yeah, I'm excited for that one too, mate. Uh, good job, and and I'm looking forward to to listening to it. Um, uh, and I like the fact that you've left a little bit of a tease there. That's really good. No, thank you to to our our new and old um, or, or not so new Patreon subscribers. We we do appreciate the support. It, it helps to to keep this um, this running, and and also appreciate all of the feedback and and the reviews on on Apple Podcasts and and the other podcast apps again we're, we're really overwhelmed by all of the feedback that we continue to get and that includes people sharing photos of them listening to us on you know the greek islands and in airplanes and um and all of those places equal parts jealous and, and equal parts really proud that um that you know people uh, care enough about you and i and and, and what we have to say and and um, and and the footy club to to listen in even when they're on holidays, mate. So thank you for for all of that encouragement. It really does mean a hell of a lot to us. So yeah, thank you. And and looking forward to watching the footy on Saturday night. Absolutely. Well, look, stay safe, everyone, wherever you are, and go Dons. <laughs>